Welcome to Into Africa. My name is Mvemba Pezo Dizolele. I'm a senior fellow and the director of the Africa program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. This is a podcast where we talk everything Africa, politics, economics, security, and culture. Welcome. On April 2nd, 2023, United States Vice President Kamala Harris returned from a week-long visit to Africa. The trip took her to Ghana, Tanzania, and Zambia, where the Zambian government also hosted the Summit for Democracy. She is the highest-ranking member of the Biden administration to travel to Africa, following visits by other prominent officials, including the First Lady Jill Biden, the Secretary of Treasury Janet Yellen, and the Secretary of State Anthony Blinken. We note that her delegation included members of the African diaspora. It was a substantial visit as the vice president made important pronouncements and announced commitment worth over $7 billion of U.S. investment in the private sector and several other areas. These include the closing of the digital divide in Africa, financial inclusion of youth and women, and climate resilience, adaptation, and mitigation. What shall we make of the visit? Did the charm offensive work? Joining me on Into Africa to discuss Vice President Harris' trip are Maria Burnett, a human rights lawyer and consultant to human rights organizations and foundations, and a non-resident senior associate at the Center for Strategic and International Studies Africa program. And Jude Moore, a senior policy fellow at the Center for Global Development and the former Minister of Public Works of Liberia. Welcome, Maria. Welcome, Jude. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. The Vice President just returned from Africa. What is your read of this trip? She's the fifth senior official and definitely the most senior U.S. official to visit the continent, following on visit by the U.S. Ambassador to the U.N. Linda Thomas-Greenfield, Secretary of State Antony Blinken, Secretary of Commerce, Secretary of Education, and also the uh, Secretary of Treasury, Janet Yellen. What is your sense of this visit? What does it mean? I uh, will start with you, Maria. I think this visit has been a really important moment to show that the United States' first female vice president and first black female vice president could both go there to discuss substantive issues and also remember America's very violent and racist past by, you know, visiting the places where slaves were taken from during her visit in Ghana. It echoed back, obviously, to President Obama's visit to Gore Island in Senegal several years ago. I think the visit is very important. I think for many years, many of us have hoped that Africa would receive greater diplomatic bandwidth from the United States government that the tone of the engagements would be substantive and non-patronizing, that African countries would be treated as equals. And I think these visits are hopefully part of building towards that. Certainly not to say that there aren't many difficult conversations and topics that maybe weren't highlighted as much as would have been ideal, but hopefully this is a work in progress. You say it was not highlighted as what might have been ideal. What would you have thought to be ideal? Well, we've heard this administration several times say that it would be 
living through its values and its foreign policy. We've heard them talk a lot about a focus on corruption and fighting corruption and a commitment from USAID to focus on corruption. And I think while President Obama had discussed the issue of the fight against corruption, that wasn't raised as directly, it seems, during Vice President Harris's visit. I also think there are really significant human rights issues that unfortunately came off as somewhat sidelined. Obviously, Ghana and Tanzania have both had really challenging environments for their LGBTQ populations. And I think not just for the issue of the criminalization of same-sex conduct, but criminalization of activism around those issues, which also profoundly affects public health and the implementation of programs to fight against HIV AIDS, which obviously the U.S. is a very significant funder to around the world and in Africa. So I think it would have been great to hear her also raise this issue of the challenge of criminalization of activism and the impact on the U.S.'s ability to partner with African governments to ensure success in the fight against HIV. Judy Moore, same question to you. Again, thanks for having me. I think it's a good start. I think part of the breathless coverage that's accompanied these high-level visits is prompted by the novelty. Historically, these kinds of exchanges didn't happen. High-level visits to Africa were sort of dangled like a reward for good behavior. It wasn't seen as the normal order of doing business, state-to-state exchanges. And I know that the U.S. government has gone out of its way not to draw some sort of comparison with its geopolitical rival, China. But I think China's experience in Africa is, is instructive here. For the last 33 years, the first stop on annually on the China, the Chinese foreign minister's international visit is Africa. They've done it for three decades to such an extent it no longer gets any wall-to-wall coverage. It's become considered the normal part of doing business. That has not been the relationship between the United States and its African partners. And so I think the Biden administration's declaration that it is going to treat Africa as a partner, I think this is a continuation of that. It is my view that historically, because Africa has been a net recipient of U.S. assistance, the idea that Africa could be a partner has been difficult to process in U.S. foreign policy. We've seen a change now. And so one hopes that these high-level visits that we're seeing, these exchanges that we're seeing, that it would be the beginning of the normalization of a partnership between the United States and the continent. So for me, I I think it's a good start and nothing more than that. So in that sense, this is kind of not just changing the narrative, but changing the substance of the relation itself. You think the colonial history, the focus on humanitarian aid over the years have affected the way the U.S. interact with the continent, if I hear you correctly. I'd imagine so. Africa has, at least in our brief history, we've received attention from the United States, particularly if the United States is in, is in some sort of conflict with a peer or near-peer competitor. So there was significant U.S. presence on the continent during the Cold War. And then after the collapse of the Berlin Wall, and there was no longer a rival, we saw a disengagement from the United States, but generally the West. And over the last 20 years, we've seen the rise of a new geopolitical rival in China. And this increase in China's influence is hard to separate the uptick 
in American engagement with Africa from the rise of China and China being a geopolitical rival. So I think the Biden administration has made a welcome and long overdue break from the past in terms of how it treats its African partners and how it engages them. But in my view, the relationship between the United States and Africa is still pretty haphazard and, and episodic. And what I mean by that is these things aren't institutionalized. So we can go from a U.S. president who openly considered the possibility of shutting down every American embassy on the continent to another U.S. president less than three years later who hosts 50 African delegations in Washington. We go from a relationship that seems like it has no strategic value overnight to a relationship that is so you know incredibly important. So I think part of it is we, one hopes that there can be an institutionalization of some of these things so that they're not whimsical and, not the, and, and just subject to caprice from whoever is in the White House. This has been a challenge with U.S. engagement, particularly in Africa, like you said. Who controls the Congress, who controls the purse, and so on. Maria, I would like to return back to LGBTQ rights and the dimension of freedom and democracy and so on. I think the vice president dwelt a little bit on this. Also, we're told that the choice of those countries was important because those are democracies, at least emerging democracy, we shall say. What strike you in that space, the democracy space? Is the U.S. engaging properly with those countries? What has been done and not been done? My, my point is, if these countries, Ghana, Tanzania, Zambia, or any other emerging democracy in Africa were in Eastern Europe, they'll have received tremendous support to ensure that the democratic side of the ledger, meaning institutions and so on, are fully funded and functional. And the U.S. will have stuck with them until they became at least functional. We don't have such thing in Africa. In other words, the U.S. has not stood firmly in the corner of an emerging democracy to see it succeed, right? Mali is an example. Mali, for a good 15 years, 20 years, was a, de a democracy. They were still struggling. It's a poor country, but it was a democracy. So how do you read that within the context of this trip? Were there signals that you saw that were positive or did you see a lot of missed opportunities? Well, I think this goes a little bit to Judith's point about the haphazardness of U.S. engagement. Yeah, it's, I mean, democracies aren't built during any single U.S. administration anywhere in the world. And so therefore, that kind of support that it would take to build an enduring democracy takes a lot of time. And so I think what we saw was a selection of countries that have leaders who stand for certain issues, you know, that is free and fair elections, elections that have stood the test of some credibility, you know, a strong female president who has tried to speak about female inclusion. I think there were reasons for the selection of each country that spoke to issues that are seen as key to this current administration. And you have to look at those that were not selected who remain important partners of the United States who, you know, in some cases have very problematic issues going on and therefore were not selected. So I think the selection is important, but certainly there is a huge amount of work to be done to build stronger and more enduring democracies in many countries. And I would argue that the, the missed opportunities are ones to really engage with human rights issues, not in a kind of secondary way or to remove them from the narrative of what's important about the engagement, but to fully mainstream them in that dialogue. That is, we want to partner with these countries for investment. 
but we also want to have partners who share our democratic values. And part of a dem- having democratic values is believing in the importance of civic activism, of tolerating divergent views, tolerating critical speech, right? Respecting the right to protest, right? This is a whole range of rights. And the U.S. has been challenged on these issues at home. And if it's going to stand by those democratic values and its engagement with different African countries, it should be willing to ensure that there isn't a sense of kind of parking those issues to the side or, you know, letting one part of the government engage on human rights issues while like the real work happens on the other side, quote unquote, real work. I would argue that this needs to be part of the same continuum. And I think we hear that rhetorically from different U.S. officials at different times. I mean, the notable example for me was in the wake of Uganda's election in 2021, where the spokesman for the the State Department, Ned Price, you know, stood up and said, we are going to live through our values here. But then in the hard work of all of these engagements, we heard Vice President Harris, for example, say when the issue of LGBTIQ rights was raised, you know, this is a human rights issue. We hope that that doesn't mean that it's something that can be parked to the side while other engagement goes on, but that it can be absolutely mainstreamed into the engagement so that the United States' commitment to democratic values come with those values of inclusion and a commitment to those key rights. So you said she said that LGBTQ rights are human rights. Where did this come about? Was this in Tanzania and was it in a press conference? Was this as part of pronouncement? My understanding is she was, I think, asked by the New York Times journalist while she was in Ghana about that issue. Clearly, Ghana has a bill pending that is very, very harsh, not just on the issue of same-sex conduct, but on activism and criminalizes activism around the rights of LGBTIQ people and has been pending for quite a while. It's a private member's bill. So my understanding is she was asked, you know, about that. And she said it's a human rights issue. My sense is that there's been a desire by the U.S. government to not be seen as lecturing African governments on this issue, that their sensitivity about being seen as neocolonial, obviously, as many of us point out all the time, the laws that criminalize much of same-sex conduct are colonial in and of themselves and were brought in by British colonial legislators. And these countries she visited are former British colonies. So many of their current laws on the books stem from that colonial past. But the U.S. has an entire department within the State Department, if I can repeat myself there, DRL, Democracy, Human Rights and Labor. There is uh, the National Endowment for Democracy and other organizations that work to support civil society organizations on the continent. Do you think they're doing enough or do you think we need to be creative, the United States that is? in the way they engage, including the administration. Yeah, I think we absolutely need to be more creative. I think this does affect investment. It does affect security, right? In an environment in which civic activism is criminalized, where civic space is shrinking, not just for LGBTIQ activists, but for lots of different kinds of activism, right? We've certainly seen activism in different parts of Africa face real crackdown and threats for arguing for divergent views, for arguing for free and fair elections. These issues of human rights are just simply not secondary. And DRL is part of a matrix of USG agencies that have to be deeply invested in ensuring that basic fundamental rights, human rights, but often constitutional rights, many African countries have very strong constitutions on these issues. So it's important to point out that this isn't some foreign law coming from outside, that these constitutional rights that the U.S. Constitution has as well are shared and prioritized in their engagements. That particularly, I would argue, that issue of tolerating divergent speech. You know, we've often seen 
that one of the first moves for many dictatorial regimes is to crack down on those with divergent views and to prey on your marginalized population. It is absolutely, you know, Putin's playbook to crack down on his own LGBTI activist community and to threaten those who are critical of him. So to the extent that the U.S., you know, wants to have partnerships in Africa that are based in that appreciation, shared appreciation for democratic values, I think that those kinds of tactics need to be called out and support to those activists needs to be absolutely front and center in those engagements. The vice president talked about ingenuity, innovation across the continent, bringing about the increase of the involvement of youth and women. She also talked about food security and, of course, workforce. The quality of that pronouncement, the quality of the investment that the U.S. is promising, how do you assess that? Do you think it's robust enough? Of course, it's meant to be seen, but from where we stand today and what we know from the fact sheets and everything else, where do you see this going? Before I respond to that, I just wanted to comment on some of the issues that Maria spoke about. I think the U.S. in Africa, when it comes to rice issues, is trying to thread a needle. 20 years ago, 30 years ago, the U.S. and the Europeans, and maybe the Japanese, were the only game in town. The tools available to the U.S. to influence African governments were pretty powerful. Today, if the U.S. abandons a country and decides it doesn't want to engage that country anymore, there are other actors who can fill in that gap, that vacuum. We're seeing that in the Central African Republic. We're seeing it in Mali. We're seeing it in Burkina Faso. So I think Secretary of, of State Lincoln's recent trip to Ethiopia sort of gives an idea of what that looks like. There's engagement with the Ethiopian government as to a pronouncement after that there were rights abuses. And so the U.S. tries to balance its values without completely ending its engagement. And I think it's going to become increasingly difficult. I also think that on the issue of democratic governance and rights, this isn't an excuse, but 100 years after American independence, it wasn't even at that point. And so based on the level of the development across those countries, I think a lot of countries are making a progress. But this is the difference between American engagement and, say, Chinese engagement, because if you're a journalist and you're in jail in a country, you're confident that when the U.S. ambassador goes to speak with the president, the ambassador will bring that issue up because American foreign policy is shaped by American values. So this is a balance that the U.S. is trying to keep here. In terms of the investment for youth and women, and I, I think at some point there has to be a reassessment of how the U.S. engages Africa. This overwhelming focus on soft issues, on health, on education, this is not to say these things are not important, but when we're talking about food security, one of the ways to guarantee food security is building agricultural infrastructure. I'm talking irrigation, canals, to ensure that when droughts do come, people can still be able to get those yields. And U.S. involvement in hard physical infrastructure still leaves a lot. You know, and so most people, for example, the average person look at the comments on social media, listen to their comments on talk shows. When they compare American presence in Africa to Chinese presence, the measuring rod they tend to use is infrastructure. And so if we want to see more involvement of women in the economy, if we want to see countries prosper, 
we know that prosperity, that growth of the economy happens on the back of a functioning infrastructure. So there has to be more visible American presence in infrastructure building in Africa. Not that things like PEPFAR, PMI, and MCC aren't important. They're really, really important. But at some point, the, the infrastructure that undergirds that has to be built. And because we are a low savings environment, we're continuing to look externally for assistance to do that. So I hear that and I'm encouraged by it, but I'm not holding my breath, especially when they're like, oh, we're going to raise funding. We're going to mobilize funding. And I've written that the worst thing a policymaker in Africa can hear from an external partner is that we are going to mobilize. What does that even mean? The pledge. Yeah, exactly. The pledge. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what is the risk here? I mean, the vice president went, this was, by most measure, was a successful trip as far as this type of trips go. High profile, Maria talked about the first women vice president, the first African-American vice president, the symbolism of her going to Cape Coast Castle, the emotion that came with it. There's no underestimating that. So all these promises carry a risk. I imagine it carries risk. One, there's a lot of pronouncement. What are some of the risks you see within this? And I think first is at some point there's going to be diminishing returns to high level visits, right? It's exciting because it's novel. It's, it's exciting because it hasn't been happening before. But, you know, by the time we get to the eighth, 10th, 12th visit, the, the returns from each of the visit is not the same. At some point, something substantive will have to be all of these pronouncements. So one of the things that people keep asking, I was talking to someone in the White House about this, is the U.S. decided to go the route of the Japanese and the Chinese and announce an aggregate number that they're going to spend over three years. So 55 billion. Do you know what most people are asking today? Where is the 55 billion? Where is the breakdown of the 55 billion? So at some point, this engagement, the, the proof they say is in the pudding. So at some point, people are going to want to see. And if that substantive part, if the substance does not match the perception and rhetoric, then all of this would have been in vain because then it looks cynical. It looks hypocritical. So that is the risk. But one hopes that, you know, smart people at the White House, the State Department recognize this and they understand the risk inherent in this engagement. Maria, same question to you in terms of the risks that this type of visit carry. Yeah, I think the key risk is, is building a sense of expectation among both governments and also citizens of these different countries themselves and not being able to maintain that. The U.S. is, you know, facing its own elections coming up. It'll detract certainly from a certain amount of nuanced foreign policy engagement. And then, you know, we'll see where the U.S. administration is. We may end up back as Judy mentioned, in a situation in which we have no continuity at all with all of these different visits, or we may end up in a situation where there's the potential to build and to do some of the hard work and, and heavy lifting that is still required across a range of different substantive issues. But I think this is the challenge is a diplomatic bandwidth commitment to different partnerships in Africa across different issues and then momentum over time. And the U.S. has certainly demonstrated its ability to be extremely uneven in its engagement in Africa. So if you were to talk to the White House now, the people who, have, who we wish to have the ears of, what would you tell them, Maria? And then we go to Judy. So I think, you know, one of my main concerns has been that there are security relationships that the U.S. sees as key that aren't based enough or forcefully enough within a rights-respecting framework. 
There's an absence of accountability in those military relationships. There's a lack of concern for the way in which different security partnerships affect the rights of citizens. And I think that that really remains a very difficult challenge for the United States. Those security relationships are important, but we often find that militaries are the source of, it, of insecurity for many citizens and that that is something that needs to be righted if the U.S. is going to support security partnerships for different interests, often its own interests. We certainly should be hoping that those relationships are based in partnerships where citizens are not living in fear of their own military. So that remains a really key issue for me across all of the U.S. engagement because the military relationships dominate so much. I would argue DOD has been a more steady partner across different African countries than the State Department or the White House has been over the last several decades. Okay, so that's beyond the military. It's also the entire law enforcement, security, and defense departments. Mm. Jude, same question to you. If we're talking to our friends at the White House or State Department or the Hill, what will you tell them within the context of this trip? So I have a piece coming out on this exact same thing, and I have the three suggestions to them. One of them is the most basic thing we can do is to institutionalize the U.S.-Africa Leaders Summit, something that the State Department plans, say, every three years. You know, between Japan and Africa, we don't have to worry about TCAT. Since 1993, we know every three years is a fixture on the schedule of both Japanese and African leaders. Same thing with the EU-Africa summit, same thing with China. So the U.S. is the only major partner with haphazard engagement. So that's the first thing. Work with Congress to institutionalize that. It shows that you are serious. The second thing for me is, and it's a really simple thing, I think it's not as even big. One of the U.S. agencies that does a really good job of trying to build ties between the diaspora and Africa is the U.S. Africa Foundation. But the U.S. Africa Foundation is really small. Their budget last year was like 48 million, and that was the largest budget in 21 years or something like that. It was like, make it 100 million. <laughs> you mean the Africa Development Foundation? U.S. Africa Development Foundation. Yeah, yeah. You know, increase the resources so that they can continue to do the things that they do really well in building ties. I mean, they're on the ground. They're, they're really spread thin, but they need significant resources to do that. And then the final thing that I would say is that, you know, the African Development Bank has this plan of onward lending of SDRs. It looks like from the current composition- SDR, SDRs being, can you spell it out for our audience? That's the special drawing rights. It's kind of like the international money that the IMF gives. But it looks like because of, of the way Congress is set up now, the U.S. isn't going to. So the U.S. can spend political capital and get other countries that might be able to do it. Canada, the U.K., Japan, South Korea, because the African Development Bank is looking for five donors to be able to do that. Like it is these kinds of things that we need to see the U.S. government, the administration expend valuable political capital in advance of an African objective. And then we know that you have skin in the game. Then we know that you're serious about being all in in Africa and treating Africans as partners. So those would be my recommendations. Well, on that note, I'd like to thank both of you, Maria Burnett and Judy Moore, for joining us today. It's been an interesting conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Mbemba. Thank you for listening. We want to have more conversations about Africa. Tell your friends. Subscribe to our podcast at Apple Podcasts. You can also read our analysis and report at csis.org slash Africa. So long. Mm-hmm.